Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, we have talked at great length uh, on this show uh, in regard to the opioid crisis, uh, its origin, uh, how it's starting, where it's all coming from, uh, how it has affected uh, the economy, health, uh, cities, municipalities, provinces, countries, uh, and so on and so forth, and, and never seem to be able to get a handle on this situation, on this crisis, despite uh, the amount of lives that it takes. And it was interesting, I was listening to somebody earlier on today saying that, you know, if this was gun crime or some other means of killing people, it would probably get more election coverage than uh, what it it has in this campaign. Uh, Let's fast forward to a a great piece uh, done by Global News, Jane Gerster, How Trevor Died, Why Prison Offers a Golden Opportunity to Help Solve uh, the Opioid Crisis. And to talk more about all of this uh, from Global News, Jane Gerster is joining us now. Jane, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a great piece that once again uh, tells you the personal side of how this addiction, how this crisis affects families. Tell us about Trevor. Absolutely. So Trevor Darrow was um, a 37-year-old man from Kitchener, Ontario, who lived out in Saskatchewan for a while. Uh, One of two boys. Um, He started having some troubles with drugs when he was really young, about 15. Um, And it's something his father, Sam, talks about struggling to know how to talk to him about, which I think comes up a lot with people. Um, And eventually that did get the better of him and he overdosed and died um, in Warkworth Prison um, in April. So fill in some of the gaps between that first encounter with the father trying to help him and, and eventually uh, Trevor's demise. Did any sort of idea what life was like for Trevor at 15? I mean, we know that, you know, he was a great kid, that he was loved, that he had a lot of friends. Um, but one of the things that, you know, doctors are really encouraging sort of Canadians to open their minds to is just how addictive substances are. You know, you can do something once and be addicted. Um, and so, you know, it's over the course of, you know, the lives of six million Canadians, they're going to struggle with this at some point. So, you know, his father has no idea how this initially started. What he does know is that, you know, Trevor was a hard to read kid. He seemed happy, but he sort of rebuffed help. Mm. So he, it doesn't sound like he had very good uh, communication with Trevor at this age. He doesn't really know what sort of drugs he was involved in. I guess the question I'm asking is, how did he get involved in drugs when he was 15? Do we know? We don't know. There's a lot, yeah. unfortunately, of gaps here. And so eventually uh, Trevor makes some mistakes in lives in life and ends up into the uh, prison system. Fast forward to the last few weeks of his life and, and what happened. Yeah, so Trevor was in the middle of a two-year sentence. It had to do with um, driving while impaired, um, drug dealing, and driving without a license. Um, he he really struggled while he was there, but his father, you know, in his conversations with his father, he seemed finally ready to sort of get out and, uh, and start fresh. He seemed ready to build that life that his father had been trying to help him with. Um, unfortunately, prison is a really... It's a really hard place to get help for some people. I mean, Workworth has wait lists for people who want to get on methadone treatment or other opioid substitution therapies, and that's what Trevor was on. Um, and he actually overdosed several times leading up to his death. And uh, one of the things that we talk about that's really unfortunate is the cycle of treatment after an overdose uh, and how 
he didn't, you know, if you're not actually getting sort of the care that you need and the solution is just to put you in administrative segregation, so forced abstinence, which is what happened to Trevor, mm. you actually come out more vulnerable to overdoses. Wow. Uh, so obviously, uh, Trevor's parents are talking about how, when in prison, this is a golden opportunity to try to get a handle on this. You talked about segregation. What are they trying? What, what are they trying to uh, to get out of this? His father wants answers. You know, he's still waiting. We're six months out from his death, and he's still waiting for CSC, the, for Corrections Canada, to provide him with, you know, a really detailed breakdown. He doesn't understand why, if they were aware, as they have acknowledged being aware, that Trevor had problems with drugs, why they weren't watching him more closely. And, I mean, when we talk about, you know, prison being a golden opportunity, that would be, you know, health experts like McMaster's Dr. Lori Regenstreet actually saying that. They're talking about how how, you know, abstinence is actually a great moment to start people on substitution therapies, how they are readily available, and how, you know, prison, because a lot of the people who are overdosing in prison are people who are there on very short sentences, between two and four years, which means that those are people who are going in and out and in and out. And that process actually makes them more vulnerable to overdose because there's no continuity of care Hmm. so that's why it's the golden opportunity and i can imagine when an overdose happens there's probably lots of care at that point to get you back normal and to at least get you functioning but then what after that that's a big question mark in, in trevor's story i mean i've talked to several inmates uh, who were living kind of in the similar units or same units, depending on the time with Trevor, you know, and they talk about there being really no institutional support. So in Trevor's case, they said lots of people just didn't want him on their unit anymore because an overdose meant a lockdown and it meant restrictions of privileges. So they would try to treat him themselves. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it's kind of... It's tough. I mean, Trevor was on a wait list. There were, as of July, about a dozen or so inmates on a wait list at Workworth for this treatment. And that is something that experts just don't, they don't get because these are drugs that are easy to prescribe and readily available. Uh, This all opioid addiction related, I'm assuming? Yes. um, It's... Trevor's, one of his overdoses is related to fentanyl. There's another related to heroin and hash. And then there's a type of very high THC concentrate called shatter that's quite mm-hmm. common in prison right now. So he overdosed on several different things. It, it, it almost sounds as if we need a separate path for those that are suffering an opioid addiction. Well, I mean... This is where, you know, doctors talk a lot about, you know, doctors certainly who have worked in and out of the prison system talk a lot about this clash of cultures and how, you know, understandably the prison system is very concerned with safety and security and keeping drugs out. And, you know, part of that has to do with, you know, how many people can be on certain drugs at certain times. And, you know, the doctors are saying, actually, we need, you know, we need to just treat them. And, you know, so a lot of, given how prevalent addiction issues are in prison there are there's certainly a growing movement of people who would fall under the you know the decriminalization movement who uh who believe that there is actually a better path for a lot of people uh, many as with trevor's family not seeing the uh the, the help from politicians and government that they need this is becoming so massive we're hearing so much about it right away across the country will it get to the point where we have no 
other recourse but to try to intervene with these uh, people in the prison system? I wish that I had a magic answer for that. Um, I Because it I certainly don't know. doesn't seem like this problem is slowing down any. No, no, it doesn't. I think one of the things that's really difficult, and if you know, if you're interested in some heavier reading on the uh, Correctional Investigators Annual Report, I mean, you can just go through it, and it and it goes through the ways in which these issues play out behind bars, which, you know, as as we're learning, you know, plays out in our society, and I think. We don't give those issues a lot of attention. You know, I've written a lot about how prison reform is not a big election or even just a general topic that Canadians want to engage in. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Whenever anything comes up about somebody who has committed a horrific crime and, you know, the rehabilitation process sees that they go down to a lesser form of security, usually the public gets pretty cranky about that. But this is a completely separate issue in the sense that uh, this is not only engulfed uh, criminal activity, but it's engulfed everyday society. So it, it seems that uh, certainly a, a different path is needed to be taken here. I think a lot of experts have argued that, and it's you know perhaps just a matter of time until maybe one of those arguments uh, you know convinces a person in power. Is we'll the have to wait and see? Is the prison system set up to do this? As the parents said, and how this story started was uh, you know experts, family saying that prison is the perfect opportunity to get this stuff all rolling. Are they set up for that? Can they do that? I think that, you know, when I talk to Dr. Regenstreif, her answer is, is yes. You know, it's not it's not hard to give people access to these things, and that's just a great starting point. And then it makes other, you know, it can help make people more receptive to other treatments uh, and other group therapy sessions. So I think it's possible, I think, we just haven't gotten to the stage yet where we're having a public conversation about what that looks like. Uh, what do uh, doctors like this or prisons say that they need in order to do the job, in order to, you know, what tools do they need in the toolbox here? Well, if you're talking to doctors, I mean, it depends. Right now, we, you know, people, they just opened uh, in June one of the first safe consumption sites in prisons in Drumheller, Alberta. Um, you know, and that's not without controversy from you know, prison guard unions um, over safety risks. Um, and then, you know, one of the, the one of the big issues, the government's facing a lawsuit right now federally for um, needle exchange programs. So, you know, depending on who you ask and sort of what area of the problem they're trying to deal with, you know, people would say you need more doctors who are prescribing drugs like buprenorphine or, um, you know, to, to inmates who need help with withdrawal, um, the safe consumption sites, and also needle exchange. What is the chance of, or, or is there an appetite for safe consumption sites in prison? There seems to be, so far from what we're, the response we've seen to Drumheller, there seems to be more of an appetite for safe consumption sites than for needle uh, exchanges. But again, it really depends on kind of who you're talking to yeah. and which specific prison. And I mean, one of the things that um, uh, the Conservative Party has said that they plan to roll back is needle exchange programs in prison. Obviously, uh, many ha- you know have have said that, that there isn't an appetite for um, spending too much time on people in prison. But however, with the opioid crisis being what it is, it seems like if we don't get a handle on this, everybody's going to end up in prison. 
I, I don't know. It's not That's, really a question, I know. <laughs> so, uh, what is anybody listening to this? Like you said, it's not an election issue, or it really hasn't been that prominent in the election. Uh, are we moving forward on this? Do you get the sense that, that we're lost, or that we at least have an idea of, of how, how, to, how to resolve this? There is an incredibly dedicated community of advocates um, and legal advocates who are seeing this issue through, whether it's through Canadian human rights complaints or through legal lawsuits. So I absolutely think, you know, here and there, the needle is being moved and some people are being helped, um, you know, but in terms of whether, you know, how to put that conversation in a palatable way to the broader Canadian public, I think that's still that's still a struggle. And, you know, you think about it, the story that you did on Trevor uh, started, father knew about this at 15. Uh, he was 37 when he passed away. This was a lifelong struggle for him. This was, and it really ties into some of the myths. I mean, you know, one of the conversations that Sam had with Trevor is, you know, about methadone and Trevor was very resistant and said that's just changing one drug for another and that's a myth that's you know that's not correct I mean hmm. there's a lot about that on our website for people who want to read about it but you know it is a myth and it is a persistent one that experts are still working to debunk all right if we want to find out more where can we go on this Jane globalnews.ca all right, the uh, article is How Trevor Died, Why Prison Offers a Golden Opportunity to Help Solve the Opioid Crisis. Jane Gerster from Global News has, uh, has provided this for you. It's, great. it's uh, definitely worth the read. Jane, thanks for the time and insight. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.